The Planet Sport Rugby Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Planet Sport Rugby Podcast, Japan 2019. I'm Adrian Barnard and this is episode 31 of our Japan 2019 series as we focus on the Rugby World Cup in Japan. Well, today we're hearing from a World Cup legend, someone who knows what it's like to lift the Webb Ellis Trophy as a World Cup winning captain. That was in 1991. He is the Australian legend, Nick Farr-Jones. Nick played 63 times for the Wallabies. And when I spoke to him a little while ago about his career and World Cup experience, I began by asking what went through his mind when he heard he'd been selected for his debut match against England back in 1984. Well, I was delighted. Um, I'd been on the bench for four matches, four tests uh, previously. The first uh, was against Fiji in Fiji and then um, three tests against the All Blacks. But look, I I started to play well on the beginning of the tour. I think we played about five or six matches before the first test uh, at Twickenham. And um, I figured I had a 50% chance of of making test selection. But until you actually hear your name read out, uh, you're never quite sure. I mean, I was delighted. I Twickenham is, is obviously one of my favourite grounds. It's a, it's a magnificent place, great atmosphere. I debuted there. We won a World Cup final there, so it's a special ground for me. And um, you know, to run out there and uh, with all the, the wonderful ceremony and atmosphere at Twickenham, it was certainly a special day. A very successful tour, that. You beat England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales on that tour. Arguably, I think, one of Australia's greatest teams ever. Um, you can look at the 91 Wallabies uh, that triumphed in the World Cup, the 99 Wallabies... Um, I would say that the 84 team, given that it was the amateur period, was right up there with the very best Wallaby team ever to have represented uh, Australia. And certainly um, it was the eighth Wallabies that toured the UK that played England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And uh, as history tells us, it was the only Wallaby team that uh, that won the four tests, but a fantastic team. Uh, Of course, Mark Ellis scored a try in every test. Um, Sadly, Mark retired at the end of that tour, but at least I had the privilege of, of throwing passes to him on four occasions. Sadly, though, the fun went out for Mark and, and uh, you know, he just dropped out of the game at the age of 26. But, you know, the smashing pack of forwards in front of me, I got the ball on a silver platter and, um, as I said, it started with Mark Eller. It went through Michael Liner, our captain, Andrew Slack, who was a wonderful captain, Roger Gould at the back, um, Campo on, on one wing, sort of setting everything on fire, and uh, Brendan Moon and, and Matt Burke on the wings. Um, hard to beat that sort of a back line. As you said, some great personalities in that Australian team. Then playing with Campo, what was that like? Uh, very special. As, as Campo was famously quoted once, he said, uh, my mind doesn't know where my legs are taking me. And, and it's about right. I mean, he was just one of those um, instinctive players that, that just had pure genius. You know, without him, I've gone on record a number of times uh, saying we mightn't have won the 91 World Cup. It's a huge statement to, to make about a winger, uh, to have that sort of an impact on on a game, but David was a true genius. Of course, you know, people blamed him for losing the series in 89 against the Lions when he threw that silly pass with uh, maybe five minutes to go in the third test in Sydney. But, uh, you know, a lot of people called for his sacking that. A lot of media called for him his sacking. I was forced in the end as captain to, to write an open uh, letter to the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, one of our, our better known Australian newspapers here, to basically say, look, Camper, you know you've made a mistake, you'll learn from it, but you know, if I was selecting the team, you would always be the first selected and, you know, you will play without licence and, and get out and do your stuff because it's fair to say that David, of course, walked a tightrope. He wasn't going to die wondering if he could beat the tackle and, and if you do that, from time to time, you'll you'll slip over and, and slip off. But a very brave player, very courageous player because he was prepared to chance his arm and, as I said, uh, history has shown that uh, he was just absolutely the man of the match in 91. That's one thing to beat some of the Northern Hemisphere sides but to come back after that Grand Slam... 
and go to New Zealand and win the Bledisloe Cup. That must have been fantastic for you. Yeah, look, it was great. As I said, I, I sat on the bench in, in that uh, 84 series when we lost the third test by one point. I debuted against New Zealand um, the following year in the one-off test in, in Auckland. We lost 10-9. Uh, then on that 86 tour that you referred to, the, the first test we won 13-12 in Wellington. The second test we lost 13-12 in, in Dunedin. So quite remarkably, uh, in matches between the All Blacks and the Wallabies, one point separated us in four consecutive tests. Um, sadly, we're on, only on the right side of the ledger in one. But then to, to go up to Auckland in the third and, and deciding test and to emphatically beat the All Blacks was a sensational feeling. But uh, perhaps looking back on it, I think we might have got carried away with our own worth and uh, how good we were because I don't know what New Zealand did in the off-season, you know, between 86 and 87. But come the inaugural World Cup in 87, New Zealand were first and Daylight was second. Well, after that victory in the Bledisloe Cup, Australian rugby went through the doldrums a little bit and you were appointed as captain four years after making your debut. And you inherited a, a side which wasn't doing too well and the next 13 games, I think, it was just five victories. So it must have been quite a challenge for you as captain. How did you manage to motivate the team then, knowing that you had such success just a few years before? Now, it wasn't going through such a good time. You know, the wheels certainly did fall off. I mean, after the World Cup, we... we uh... We lost the one-off test to New Zealand and then we went to Argentina at the end of 87. It would have been unthinkable at the beginning of 87 that you could lose a series there. But uh, we drew the first test and Hugo Porter kicked about four or five field goals to put us out of business in the second. So we came back and lost the series. Our coach, Alan Jones, um, obviously suffered. He was dumped as Australian coach. Bob Dwyer came back into the into the coaching role and um, yeah, selected me a little out of the blue, I thought. Um, there were probably better credentialed players who would have taken over the uh, the captaincy. But I had been selected to captain New South Wales the year before and, and Bob sort of went out on a limb and, and selected me. It was a period where we still had a good team. There was no doubt about that, but we were going through a building phase. We had to sort of, you know, pick a lot of young players. Um, but we were a very inconsistent team. I remember particularly a tour of of France in uh, in 1989 where we had a magnificent victory at Strasbourg and seven days later we're about to be the first Australian team to win a series on French soil and we played miserably and, and lost by six points and what we had to do in the late 80s and uh, you know going into the second world cup was change the culture of the Wallabies I think we were very scoreboard orientated we we desperately wanted to win but because of that desperation, it often translated into whenever we got the ball, we wanted to score the points. And we just made a lot of mistakes and often handed the, the game to the opposition. And what we had to to, to change culturally was um, to become more process-driven, to, to understand what your role in the team is, whether that's in preparation or the actual 80 minutes. Do your job as well as you can. Trust your teammates around you to do their job and management to do their job. And at the end of the 80 minutes, look up and see what the scoreboard tells you and we got that right, coupled with um, Bob Dwyer's vision of selecting, you know, Timmy Hoare and Jason Little, who weren't playing for Queensland at the time. Phil Kearns, who wasn't even playing first grade for his club, Randwick at the time. Tony Daly, Ewan McKenzie, Willie Offerhen Galway, John Eels in, in the World Cup year of 91. So we had this great balance of, of youth and, uh, and some good experience. And, you know, the personnel was very important, but also that cultural change. And we went on in the 90s. I think we... You know, 91, 92, 93, I think we played about 25 tests and uh, won about 22 of them. So we did become that consistent team that we were sort of really aching to become. Before the 91 World Cup, did you have any feeling that you were going to win this tournament? Because you'd had a few up and down years before, as we've just been talking about, and you had some very tough matches as you went through to the final. Yeah, look, I figured we'd uh, 
we'd certainly do well. I knew it was my last throw of the dice. Um, it all started in Wellington in 1990. Um, New Zealand in the late 80s were almost untouchable. And we'd lost on that 1992 tour of New Zealand, the six-week tour. We'd lost the first test in Christchurch, played miserably. We were actually rightfully labelled by some of the journalists the woeful wallabies. A better result in Auckland, but we still went down, so we'd lost the Bledisloe. And I really believe that that third test in Wellington was absolutely crucial. There was a bit of a coup uh, going on behind the scenes, I think, to, to get rid of Bob Dwyer had we lost, perhaps even myself as captain. So uh, it was desperation stuff. It was backs to the wall, but we played brilliantly at Wellington. And uh, that was the day that we stood up and, and basically made a statement to the All Blacks that this is the makings of a very, very good Wallaby team. And then the next year, we you know did very well domestically. We, we put about uh, 60 points on Wales. We put... Uh, 25 points on England, won convincingly the first uh, New Zealand test, lost the second in Auckland 6-3. But to see the elation of the All Blacks winning in Auckland 6-3, only a year after they were almost, as I said, untouchable, you really realise that the pendulum had swung. And uh, yeah, look, I, I wasn't getting carried away, but as we boarded the plane to go to the UK for the, uh, the 91 World Cup, I was very confident that we could get it right. Experience and skill are obviously key factors but also character is very important. And you had a particular game against Ireland in the quarterfinals where you won at the death, then New Zealand in the semifinals. How important was character then in that team? I look at the World Cups that we've had and you know, I really think that an important element is, is that a team is happy. And that comes from having players in the team who are prepared to sacrifice for each other, that are selfless, you know, that uh, really are prepared to go the extra yard for the good of the team. And, and all the teams that have won have had that quality. Um, I've also been in Wallaby teams where you haven't got that quality in abundance and, um, and it often comes out on the field that uh, you, know, there's, you, know, you just don't reach your, your pinnacle or, or your potential. And uh, that 91 World Cup team was, uh, was a special team because of the character of the players, um, the ability to do whatever it took to secure the success. And as you say, that match against Ireland... I'd injured myself after 20 minutes, so I went through all the agony of the emotions of seeing Gordon Hamilton score with about five minutes to go, thinking, look, we're on a plane tomorrow morning, on the Sunday morning, to go home, and you know, I knew that I would have retired then and there. So it was a life-changing moment for me. And fortunately, in retrospect, Michael Liner had taken over the captaincy, because had I been on the field, I would have, without doubt, asked the referee how long to go, four minutes was the response, would have kicked short, you know, thinking we need possession, we, we can't win without the, the ball and, you know, had we not secured possession, who knows what would have happened, but Michael Liner, um, the acting captain, just calmly found out there was four minutes to go, assembled the guys, said, guys, we will kick long, we'll go for field position, we'll win possession, if you get caught with possession, just keep on driving towards the Irish line, hang on to it, we'll get a scrum and we can win. I mean, I know from that scrum, I also would have asked Michael to go for field goal to level scores, um, you know, with a few minutes to go, but Michael, you know, the decision was his, he went for the try and history tells us we got the try, but uh, I've got to say that I think I decided then and there that coaching wasn't for me. To be sitting in the stand and, and to really be able to have very little input uh, in the actual 80 minutes, um, too much for me. Well, what about your recollections of that final then against England at Twickenham? A passionate crowd, worldwide television audience. As you ran out onto that pitch at Twickenham, what was going through your mind there? Well, very much to, you know, to, to plan the you know, getting the arousal levels up because quite remarkably when we went out uh, for the final there was a full 18 minutes um, before kickoff. you know the Queen had to come down and I had to introduce her to my team and then of course Carling to his team and um, then there was the anthems and another pomp and ceremony so 
it was difficult in the changing rooms because obviously the forwards want to get to an arousal level that um, you know that they need to maximise their performance. But when you've got 18 minutes of, of standing around, you've just got to control that and, and hopefully get yourself up for kickoff. So I was very much conscious of that. I was conscious of not getting any players' names wrong as well. Um, I'd been to Buckingham Palace twice before and uh, the managers who introduced the players to the team there uh, remarkably forgot the names of players um, on that occasion. You know, when you're used to calling players by nicknames and, and not having the pressure of introducing the team to the to the Queen, well, you know, you, you can understand that uh, sometimes you could slip up. But look, it was a great it was a great occasion. There's no doubt about that. Um, England chanced their arm. They they played a, a different style to the the style that they'd played in in the previous matches in that '91 World Cup and. I suppose, if anything, um, slightly disappointed that we couldn't win in the, the style and fashion that the Wallabies had been accustomed to. You know, we scored one try from five metres out from a rolling mall. We really won that game on defence. Uh, tremendous defence, desperate defence, but we didn't get a fair share of possession. We got beaten convincingly at line-out, and, and as I said, um, it was the defence that won it for us. Um, I would have much preferred if we could have uh, played an offensive attacking game, scored a couple of tries, but at the end of the day, you know, people don't so much remember the style of the game. They remember who won, and, and that was important. And uh, great relief, great sense of relief after. And, and it did something you know, special for rugby back in Australia. And to lift the Rugby World Cup as a, a winning captain. Must have been a fantastic experience. Yeah, I think the further you get away from it, the, you, the more you realise it was something special. Um, it was a, a great occasion. Um, it, it's hard to to um, to summarise the feelings, but um, I can remember I, growing up as a young kid, I played soccer. I loved my soccer, and the only reason I played rugby was because the secondary school that I went to, they didn't play uh, soccer, but I used to love getting up in the wee hours of the morning to watch FA Cup finals, and um, just to, as I went up the stairs to get the trophy from the Queen, it you know, just flashed through my mind the, the number of you know, mornings at two in the morning uh, from about the age of six onwards, um, just watching the FA Cup winning captain go up those famous stairs at Wembley to receive the trophy. And, and that was one of the recollections, strangely, that I had as I, as I went up to get the, uh, the trophy from Her Majesty. Nick Farr-Jones there, Australia's 1991 World Cup winning captain, talking to me a few years ago in Sydney. And tomorrow we'll hear the second part of that interview in which Nick talks about his faith as a follower of Jesus Christ and the difference that has made to his life. And we'll also hear from the Harlequins and former Namibia number 8, Ronaldo Bothma, who announced his retirement from international rugby just before the World Cup. But that's all we've got time for today. So from me, Adrian Barnard, thanks very much for your company today. And the Planet Sports Rugby podcast, Japan 2019, is a passion for sports production.